Good morning, everyone. Please stand for the reading of God's word. The scripture text that we will be looking at this morning is Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This particular passage can be found on pages 488 to 489 of the Blue ESV Bibles. As a reminder, those Bibles are located in the back pocket seat cover in the seat in front of you. Um, please know that those are available for you to take home if you do not have a Bible already. Once again, we'll be reading Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there were no more, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And, and immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Thus says God's word. Thank you, Raven. Let's pray together. God, we just thank you for this moment in your word. We thank you for the truth of it. Lord, we pray that you would just uh, hear us as we um, just uh, turn our attention to you as we recognize the depth of our own infirmity. God, not just the the temporal things that we struggle with, the obstacles we face, but Lord, our deep and, and abiding affirm, infirmity of sin, Lord. And Lord, we pray that, that we would recognize that you came not only to give us, uh, relief in this, in this passing world, but Lord, you came to give us full relief by taking the curse upon yourself and healing us of all of our sins, our transgressions, our backslidings. So we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that we would, uh, be drawn as Pastor David said earlier, that we would be drawn to repent today, to believe the gospel, and to trust you fully. God, we pray uh, for myself, Lord, as I bring this word. I pray that I would do honor and justice to your word, God, That that and in order for that to happen, that you would just completely overshadow me, Lord, so that I, I speak your truth as given by you and not polluted by my own thoughts and and opinions, Lord. And so I ask you for that grace upon my my mind and my tongue this morning as I speak. Thank you for this moment with these people I love so much. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. Um, this is week seven, I think. Yeah, week seven of our series on Mark. And I got good news. We're out of chapter one after, after in finally in seven weeks. So 
um, you know, maybe in a couple of years we'll be completely done with this. But, but I do want to announce something to you that um, we are beginning next week. We're going to take a, a break from Mark so that we can kind of prepare our hearts for um, for a Resurrection Sunday in April. And um, this year, I, I uh, am going to be doing a series highlighting kind of the supporting cast of characters in the story of Jesus's last week. And so next week, I'm going to be talking to you about uh, one of the most infamous characters in all of Scripture, a guy you might have heard of by the name of Judas. And so you want to be here for that. Also want to let you know that um, in order to help you prepare, we have provided on our resource uh, shelf back there these books um, uh, for your kids uh, primarily, but they'd also be great for you. They have great illustrations in here, um, and these are absolutely free to you. We've got a ton of them, so if you got kids, grandkids, take them, and let's get these out. And this is a great thing for you to be reading with your kids during the uh, the Easter season. Um, but uh, uh, So those are there. That's, that's enough commercials. Let's get into this. So a few weeks ago, uh, we discussed how Mark describes the the beginning of Jesus's public ministry happening in Capernaum. Uh, and, you know, he preached in the synagogue and he cast out devils and he healed people. It was the first time in Mark's gospel that we see a, a massive crowd come to him as he's he, as he's doing these miraculous works at, uh, and on the basis of his teaching. And uh, when Simon insisted to Jesus during that time that, that he should set up shop right there in Capernaum and continue to do his miraculous works uh, because of the popularity he was garnering, um, Jesus instead refused to do that. He wasn't going to hang his shingle out there and, and be the new miracle worker of Capernaum. And so remember what we read in the end of Mark chapter 1, he said, and he said to them, that means the, his, his, the four disciples he has so far, he says, and he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. We've been really highlighting this idea that, that though even people outside of the church often recognize Jesus through his miraculous works, his healings, his deliverance of demons, that his main purpose was to preach the kingdom of God. And he, he says that. He says, for that is why I came out, to preach. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Now, uh, last week, we read that during this preaching expedition after he left Capernaum, that a man approached him who was a leper. And we talked about all the complexities of what that meant in those days to be a leper. Um, and, he, and this man comes and he asks in faith for Christ to heal him. Well, Christ, of course, did heal him. But he instructed him to tell no one but the priests what had happened to him. But we know what happened, don't we? The man went about and announced the fact that he was healed. And more importantly, he, he announced the fact of how he had come about that healing. And this caused Jesus' fame to increase so much that Jesus, the Bible says in the end of Mark chapter 1, couldn't even enter a city because of the crowds that would be constantly demanding his attention. And so he kept to the deserted places, kind of the, the, the countryside instead of going into the cities. Now, 
So we begin today in, in chapter 2, and this is what we find. After doing this for a while, preaching throughout Galilee, which is kind of the northern, re- northern region of, uh, of, uh, of Israel at that time, um, he returns to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum, if you have a rough idea of what Israel looks like in your head, up top you have the Sea of Galilee, then down below you have the Dead Sea and the, the Jordan River connecting the two. Um, Capernaum, where he was at, was located on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, which was about 20 miles northeast of where he had grown up in Nazareth. Now, our text um, and all of its parallels seem to indicate that Capernaum was Jesus's hometown at the, as he began his ministry. Matthew's version of this story that Raven read to us says that Christ came into his own city and and Mark here says that he was quote at home. So it's very likely that Jesus was living in Capernaum, most likely that he was actually living with Simon, uh, who would later become Simon Peter, and uh, who already had a home in Capernaum. We read up that earlier in, uh, in chapter 1. And th- that remember, that's where Jesus had already stayed after he preached in the synagogue and even healed Simon's mother-in-law of a fever. Now, whether this is going to be important in a minute, this isn't just details, whether this was Jesus' own residence or the home of his close friend Simon, it was not a refuge from the crowds and their demands. Because, see, once Jesus got back to Capernaum, it did not take long at all. He'd just been there a couple days. And then the people began to discover that Jesus was back. Now, Jesus, in his previous time in Capernaum, had made a huge impression the people, the, the Bible tells us in Mark that, that the whole city had gathered to him there. And so they discover he's back and, and they just begin to fill his house and crowd even the entrance of his house at all hours of the day so that no one could easily get in and out. This is a, this is a big deal. And if it were me, a big problem. But Jesus did not complain about this. He didn't get irritated. He says, people go home. He never said that. What he did is he fulfilled his stated mission with the crowd that he attracted. Now, what did we say Jesus' main mission was? It wasn't to do miracles. It was to, to, uh, to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And what do we see here in verse 2? It says that he was preaching the word to them. And what word was that? Well, again, Pastor David pointed out to us that in, in Mark 1.15, it gives us the message of Jesus in these early days. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And this was the message that in, in uh, I'm sure many variations and a lot of illustrations and applications added to it. This was the message that Jesus preached over and over. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, notice again that in this story, in the beginning of this story, when Jesus is being crowded in his own house, Mark does not emphasize Jesus' miracle work as he tells us what Jesus was doing with the crowds in Capernaum. He was preaching. Now, it's true that in our text, an amazing, mind-blowing miracle is about to take place. However, the word had to first be preached so that people might believe and people might have faith in the one who was doing those miracles. So in this atmosphere, 
that, that is uh, in that home in Capernaum where the gospel of the kingdom and more importantly, the gospel of the king of that kingdom is being proclaimed. Mark says that four guys came carrying their paralyzed friend on a bed to receive Christ's healing power. These guys, these four guys had heard the word preached They had heard the testimony of their neighbors who had had such miraculous encounters with Christ during his first run-through in Capernaum. And, And they came seeking mercy as their faith arose, having heard what Jesus had done and what Jesus can do. How wonderful, how wonderful is it when people conspire together to see Christ work in one of their friends or one of their relatives. What love these guys must have had for their friend. No one said, ah, man, it's a shame that our buddy isn't healthy enough to make his way to Jesus. No, no one said that. They made it their responsibility to bring their friend's need before the Savior. They said, if he can't walk, we're taking him there. If he can't get there, we will make sure he gets there. And their friend needed this assistance. He was paralyzed. He was incapable of getting to Jesus. He was, like we talked about the leper from last week, he was as good as a dead man. Remember we talked about that? The leper is completely uh, cast out of society. Well, this guy wasn't in the same condition as that. But think about it. He's basically a dead man. His, his friends had to be his pallbearers and carry him around. His, his worthless body that could do nothing for itself, they had to carry him around. But think about this. They didn't carry him on his bier, on his coffin. They didn't carry him to the grave. They brought him to Jesus, believing that Christ could restore him to fullness of health, fullness of life. So we have to realize that you and I, we we have to realize this, that you and I have absolutely no answers in and of ourselves for our hurting, our confused, our spiritually dead friends. We got nothing. There's nothing that we can provide. What what are we going to give them? Pat on the back? Thoughts and prayers? No, no, no. We got nothing. What we have to do is, is rally our strength, rally our faith to bring those people to Christ who is able to deliver them. How do we do that? We, we carry them with our prayers, our prayers made in faith, not just, like I said, simple thoughts and prayers is something we put on Facebook, but our, our, we gotta carry them with our prayers. We gotta carry them with our honest communication of the truth of the gospel. We've gotta carry them with tender compassion and patience. We look at ourselves. Raise your hand right now if you have friends that don't know Jesus, family members that don't know Jesus. Get your hands up high. And so our questions we have to ask ourselves, if that's the reality, would we sit idly by refusing to carry our friends and our family and watch them die as we ignore their dire spiritual need? This is what Matthew Henry wrote. He said, it was their charity 
who did so carry him and bespeaks the compassion that it is justly expected should be in the children of men toward their fellow creatures in distress because we know not how soon the distress may be our own. What Matthew Henry is saying with his Puritan tongue is that there's something in compassion that draws you to carry other people because you never know when you yourself might need to be carried. Paul says this. He tells us this in the book of Galatians chapter 6. He says, bear each other's burdens and in this way, You fulfill the law of Christ. So when they arrive at the place where Jesus was, they discover uh, to their, uh, what would you call it, their their shock, their horror. They discover that it would be impossible. They've carried this guy all this way, and they find it's impossible to squeeze through the crowd, especially while carrying this guy. I mean, it's too crowded. The Bible says that they were pouring out of the door of the place. And it would have been easy to come to such an obstacle and say, ah, we tried. It just wasn't meant to be. See, it it would have been natural for these four guys to drown in a sea of if onlys. If only this had been different. If only it had been easier. If only the people would have made way. If only, if only, if only. And how many times do we come to a delay or a roadblock, or a difficulty in some circumstance where we have a promise of God in the Scriptures to stand upon. We want to, we want Christ to exhaust His power upon us, and yet we will, we just so easily abandon faithful, faithfulness, and and we fail to fight the good fight of faith. Faith has one proof. You know what that is. You know what the one proof of faith is? People always say, I have faith for this, I have faith for that. You know what the one proof of faith is? Action. Action is the proof of faith. Whether it means that your your action is standing on the truth of the Bible in the face of the world's opposing pressure, telling you you're crazy, telling you that that uh, God doesn't even exist, if you, that that's action. Or whether it's walking in obedience because you know in whom you have believed. Now, I'm not talking about some weird prosperity gospel where we're just looking at God as a vending machine. You drop a prayer in and and your candy comes out. That is not what I'm saying. I'm talking about standing on the promises of his written word. James tells us this, this idea of action being the proof of faith. What did he say? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, action is dead. Meaningless. It's worthless. But at this point in the story, doors blocked. They've got their guys. They brought him all that. They got their guy. They brought him all that way. I imagine one of these men saying to the others after considering the problem, he's rubbing his chin and he says, I have an idea. Don't laugh. And then all four men begin making their way all the way to the roof of the house where Jesus was preaching. Now, most homes of laborers in Jesus' day were a single story with a set of stairs attached to the side of the house to give easy access to the roof. 
And, and this was so that they could retire from homes in, with, without central heat in the Middle East. Uh, in the cool of the day, they could go up there. And, and it, was, it also kind of, for most families, served as kind of like a deck. They would sometimes take their meals up there or entertain their friends up there. That was, it, was, it was like a, an extra outside room, like a deck, like I said. Uh, this is what R.C. Sproul talks about their con- the, the construction of these. He says, Roofs were constructed of beams laid across and resting on the walls of the house. Between the beams were interlaced sticks and reeds, and within these was a woven kind of thatch. On top of the thatch lay several inches of mud. Now think about that. This mud was packed down hard against the thatch because builders in the ancient world would use rollers to pack the smooth, uh, pack and smooth this mud until it was very hard and stable. It, w- it would not have been uncommon in a city, you know, uh, Capernaum was, was kind of a, a more upscale city, so it wouldn't have been uncommon for a city like Capernaum to even also have tiled roofs similar to what they've had in Europe for centuries. Now, in Luke's account of this story, the, the, it actually refers to the roof as being tiled. We don't know that it actually was tiled. Not that I'm saying that the word of God is wrong, but that could just mean tiles, meaning the layers of material used in construction. But in any case, it doesn't matter which kind of roof it was. This roof was sturdy enough, think about this, for several people to walk around upon. This was not some flimsy, you know, like you see in, on some hut in Africa. This was a really, really sturdy roof. And yet the four compassionate friends get up on that roof and immediately begin dismantling it. Think about that. You've heard the story enough that you can't even be, be moved by that story. What if it was your house? And guys start ripping your roof off. You'd have to call Jimbo to come fix it. They start tearing this roof, uh, this roof apart. Can you imagine being into the, in the, in the house where Jesus is preaching and you hear this faint scratching over your head and, and you go, what is that? And it gets louder and louder until all of a sudden some debris starts cascading down on your hair and your clothes. And soon the the Middle Eastern sun comes beaming into the living room. Can you imagine being the owner of the house, like I said, and watching these four strangers tear a hole in your roof? Not just a hole, but a hole big enough to lower an invalid man on a bed through. This is serious uh, property damage. And how are you going to explain that to your insurance company? Well, this guy was sick and they wanted Jesus to heal him. So they ripped up my roof and brought him through. I don't think that's covered. Somebody's going to have to repair this roof and do it pretty quickly before the next rain comes. And can you imagine? We can all relate to the homeowner, but can you imagine being the poor, paralyzed man earnestly praying that a rope doesn't snap or a hand doesn't slip, causing him to crash down upon Jesus? I'm sure... (laughs) that this unorthodox church service made a huge impression on everyone present. No one forgot that. That's why all three of the Synoptic Gospels all record this story in very much the same detail. But surely, of all the people that were impressed by the happenings that day, surely Jesus 
was the most impressed. Because the Bible tells us that he saw their faith. He didn't see the hole in the roof. He didn't even really see the, the obstacle presented by a man paralyzed. Mm-mm. He saw their faith. He saw the faith of the man who, cons- who consented to be brought to Jesus this way, as well as the faith of his faithful friends who only wanted their friend to be made whole and they believed in Jesus and his power to do so. As we saw last week, Jesus once again is moved with compassion. How do we know that he was moved with compassion? The Bible doesn't tell us in the text that he was, but this is how we do. This is how we know that he was. See how he addresses this poor crippled man. It says, and he said to the paralytic, son. Now, Jesus is not an old man at this point, and this man certainly was an adult. But something happened where, where Jesus's heart compelled him to so relate to this man that he called him son. He's demonstrating a tender, fatherly compassion for this man. And as Alexander McLaren said, he's taking this man into the arms of his sympathy. Every indication of the text is that the man's friends brought him near to Christ so that his body may be healed. And nothing else. That was all that was on their mind. They wanted this, they wanted this man's body to be healed. They wanted him to be made new and made better. But Jesus, peering into his soul and seeing that the disease that was there in his soul far outweighed any ailment of his physical body, tenderly says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. Obviously, Jesus looked into this man and he saw the sin that plagues every single one of us. He had, he had the, uh, you know, the, the, he, the, uh, he had also, uh, come to the man with the, the, with the awareness of the man having this sense of guilt after hearing Jesus' words, after being in his presence, this man, you know, had to, in the presence of such holiness, have a, a, a keen awareness of his own guilt. Perhaps even his condition had been brought on somehow by loose living, making him feel ashamed and unworthy to receive Jesus' healing power. Maybe all that's true, but I prefer to think that Jesus having just preached the gospel, wanted to highlight for everyone that was watching what the great goal of his message was, the salvation of men and women based on the forgiveness of God. I heard a man say one time, we've been doing a lot of this comparison between miracles and preaching, and I heard a man say one time that miracles are like Chinese food. They fill you up real fast but soon leave you hungry for more. Jesus, in the case of this man, took the initiative to give the man more than he came for. And that is always what he wants to do with us. Most of you probably came to Christ when you came to Christ to escape hell. But can't you, if you've been saved any amount of time, can't you just see that you have received so much more in Christ than just escape from hell. He always does more than we come to him for. That's always what he wants to do with us. This man did not come to Christ for forgiveness. 
thank the Lord that Jesus knew better than that man what he truly needed. Guess what? Here's a little alert. Let the sirens go off. Jesus knows better than you what you truly need. Luke chapter 5, verse 17 sets up the next chapter. To this is Luke's account of this miracle. And he says this, he says, Pharisees and teachers of the law. In other words, these guys were the cream of the crop of religious society. These were not slouches. He says they were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Now, the reason I told you where Capernaum was, because it was directly the polar opposite side of, of Israel than Jerusalem. So these guys had traveled a long way to come check out Jesus. And, and so th- there were in this house scribes, but they didn't come to hear Jesus. They didn't come to receive from Jesus. They came to analyze, to criticize, and to judge. And what they just heard Jesus say, son, your sins are forgiven, sent them into a religious tizzy. And in their hearts, they questioned him. And worse, they even accused him of blasphemy. Which, 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 in case you didn't know, in, in Israel of that day, and, and uh, many years even before that, blasphemy was a crime punishable by death, usually by stoning. Why did the Jews want to, want to crucify Jesus? Because they were still accusing him of being a blasphemer. This alleged infraction was on the basis of saying that a man's sins had been forgiven. And so their question arose in their minds, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, you guys who have any familiarity with the Gospels know how the story ends. But I want you to, want to point out something you may have never considered. If you consider these guys the bad guys in the story, I want, I want to point out one thing that you may have not considered. The premise of what they just said was absolutely true. When they said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Their, their premise was true, but their conclusion was defective. They were completely right to insist that only God can forgive sin. Only God can declare a sinner righteous or, can, or justly condemn a sinner in their guilt. The best place we see this in Scripture is when Moses has asked God if he could see his glory and God passes before him. This is what it says in Exodus 34, 6. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed his name. He said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So it was true that no one but God alone can forgive sins. They had their premise right, but they completely out of hand rejected the implication of Jesus' words. Seeing all the signs that Christ 
performed, all the healings, all the devils cast out with authority, that should have tipped them off to the fact that there was something different, something divine about Jesus. There was plenty of evidence also in the words that he spoke with such command and such purity. When Jesus heals a blind man in John 9, the Pharisees mercilessly interrogate this poor fella. And they make nasty accusations about Christ. And in simple faith, he looks him in the eyes and he says, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. This, If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So this man healed of his blindness had a lot more logic in his thoughts than these Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders. Jesus said himself in John 10, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He's saying, I, myself and the Father are one. That we, When you see me, he said in another place, you've seen the Father. But beyond the teaching and the signs, Jesus was about to give them another proof of his divinity. Watch this. Mark says that Jesus perceived in his spirit exactly what these guys were saying. Now, when it says that he perceived in his spirit, it's not saying that Jesus had a gut feeling or Jesus had a hunch. Jesus knew their thoughts clearly because he is the eternal omniscient God who knows all of your secret thoughts. You you may say, well, I, I didn't say it, I didn't do it. Doesn't matter. Jesus knew that you thought it. And Jesus knew that even though these guys were kind of whispering to each other, there was no secrets because he knew. So he poses a question to them. Hey, guys, you guys are very interested in this miracle. So let me just ask you a question. Which is easier to say? You're forgiven or get up and walk? Well, the scribes thought they had him cornered with this question for sure. Of course, it's easier to say you're forgiven. Why? Because forgiveness is an internal work. No one can prove or disprove someone else's forgiveness. That's just your word. That's just your saying, Jesus. We don't, we don't know if this guy's truly forgiven. But if Jesus had healed a paralyzed man in front of everyone watching, that would be pretty hard to criticize. Surely no blasphemer or sinner could perform such a miracle. A genuine healing in theory is surely harder to counterfeit. But Jesus was prepared to call their bluff and prove who he was in the process. Verse 10 says, but that He's addressing now these religious leaders and he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, parentheses, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Now pay attention to to several things in in, uh, Jesus' response. First, notice his title. Here for the first time in Mark, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And this is intentional 
for these men who are challenging him. Jesus will refer, uh, refer to himself in the Gospels as the Son of Man more than any other title uh, that he gives himself. And when I was young, I'd hear this term in, in sermons and scriptures, and I thought Son of Man was just a reference to Christ's human nature. And that is truly a connotation of it. It definitely refers to his humanness. But it more specifically refers to a messianic messianic figure from the book of Daniel. And so by calling himself the Son of Man, Jesus is telling these scholars, Hey guys, I am the Messiah. This is what Daniel says, just to give you a hint of what I'm talking about, in reference to the Son of Man. It says, Then I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, which is God the Father, and he was presented before him. So first, his title, I'm the Son of Man, I'm the Messiah. But second, his authority. Now, let's think back again to chapter 1. The people in the synagogue at Capernaum had remarked, uh, uh, that Jesus taught them as one who had authority and not like one of the scribes. Later, they were amazed that he spoke to unclean spirits, commanded them with authority, and they obeyed him. Now, so spoke, taught with authority, commanded devils with authority. Now, before their very eyes, he claims to have authority on earth to forgive sins. No one can forgive sins but God alone. And he's claiming to have authority. He says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he gives as a sign of that authority the healing of a paralyzed man. Now, we've already established from Scripture what the, what the Pharisees believed about God and forgiveness was true. God alone can forgive sins. So what was Jesus saying about himself? He was saying, hey, guys, I told you I'm the Messiah, but I'm not just the Messiah. See, most Jews of his day believed that the Messiah would just be an extraordinary human, kind of like King David, that, that uh, he would definitely be anointed by God and, and, and be faithful to God, but they never kind of thought that he would actually be God. But he's saying to them now, I am the Messiah, and guess what, guys? The Messiah is truly God, and that I myself, Jesus is saying, am that Messiah. We see this also clearly communicated in John when Jesus is speaking with the woman at the well. The Bible says, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And then Jesus drops a bombshell. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So we've noticed his his, uh, uh, title and his authority. um, But I want you to also look at his transforming power. Think about this. This man had come to him carried by four of his friends, but Jesus sends him away totally healed, carrying his own bed. He'd come as a sinner who was racked with guilt and under the, the wrath of God, but he goes away forgiven and restored to God's favor. And he's praising the one who had rescued him. Now, this story loudly proclaims to us some very important things that we must not miss. First of all, it proclaims to us that Jesus is God. 
There are many times, many cults, many uh, uh, people who are not truly Christian groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses will claim, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, I'm challenging uh, my Jehovah's Witnesses friends to read uh, Mark chapter 2 because to me, he just clearly uh, presented himself as God. And by the way, that's a flimsy argument because he does it all through the Gospels. But he's God. Jesus proves he's God. And that he has all authority, both in heaven and on earth. So every action of his grace and every word of his eternal truth spoken by his holy lips is divine proof of that authority. But we also see that without that, I'm sorry, we see that physical or temporal miracles without a transformed soul, are truly of no lasting benefit to us. See, our, our real disease is sin. And that real disease is always, always terminal. The prophet Ezekiel put it like this, The soul who sins shall die. And every one of us was born under that death sentence. And until our guilt is transferred to Jesus Christ on the cross, we live under that death sentence. You have no hope in your religious efforts. You have no hope in, in your, uh, you know, pursuit of morality. You have nothing. You're doomed to die. And all of us, have you know we we might have physical ailments that you know the as long as your your list as long as your arm but that's not your real problem because no matter if Jesus were to heal you of all your physical ailments right now you're still going to die someday and if you were to be a healed man or woman and you die not prepared to face God oh you might as well have kept all your physical ailments. You need to be healed in your soul. So what a priceless treasure to know the one who washes all of our sins away and throws them, the Bible tells us, into a sea of forgetfulness and separates them as far from, separates them from us as far as the east is to the west. Is this not truly healing? Is this not what it truly means to take up the coffins in which we were carried and depart at once perfectly well to our eternal home? That's what we need. That's what we need. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, we have spent some of us years praying about problems that we wish were resolved, that would go away. And yet we've ignored the corruption, the pollution, the disease, the infirmity of our own souls. So Lord, I just pray that you would, God, help us to to see our need to hear your voice pronouncing us forgiven. God, that we would look to you to be made whole, God, not just in 
the momentary ailments and pains of our body, but we would look to you to be made whole in our eternal souls, God. That you would heal us, that you would strengthen us, that you would make us new. God, I pray that those of us who have been made whole by the forgiven, the, the, the proclamation of forgiveness by Jesus, I, I pray that, that we would, God, not grow apathetic, but we would pursue holiness. The Bible says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So God, I pray that you, we would pursue holiness. I pray that even in this moment, as our heads are bowed, Lord, I pray that you would just convict us of sin that we have hidden, that we have thought that we have are not exposed in but lord i pray that you would make it very real to us that right in this moment you perceive even our thoughts lord you know the guilty dark recesses of our hearts god those we have fought to hide from everyone else and we thought we were hiding from you but lord we're so deceived we're so deceived lord help us to see the emptiness of what we're clinging to at the expense of intimacy with you. God, help us to have hearts truly of repentance to come to you and seek the healing that only you can provide. The pronouncement, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We started something last week. Um, that we're going to keep doing. We we uh, sometimes we just rush out of here too fast. So I've asked Natalie each week to to uh, let us end our service with a chance to, for you to whatever the Lord has been speaking to you for you to be able to respond in worship. So we'll we'll do that, and then I'll I'll pronounce the benediction over you.
he lavished on us His blood was the payment His life was the cost We stood neath a debt we could never afford Our sins they are many His mercy is more Praise the within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, don't forget, sign up for the potluck for next Sunday. We don't have very many people signed up right now. Let's get that filled up and have a great time here next week.